Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And how are you? Welcome from bitter cold Atlanta, where we are expecting temperatures into the teens overnight and into Wednesday morning. If you're listening Wednesday morning, you already know what I'm talking about. I live in a concrete building with huge glass wall and slider windows and a dehumidifier, which will be running probably nonstop <laughs> overnight tonight. And uh, my uh, space heater electric fireplace in the living room will be going off as well. And I know exactly that's where the cats will be parked in front. Diligently, of course. Can't say as I blame them. I might be right there with them. It is cold. It is windy, although not nearly as cold, windy, and or snowy as it was throughout the state of Iowa when voters were tasked with going to caucus for the GOP primary. Now, here's the thing. Turnout was about half what it was in 2020. About 4% of Iowa's voters participated in the Iowa caucuses yesterday. And we can attribute that to weather. We can attribute that to lack of enthusiasm. I'm going to say it's probably a little bit of both. And I just can't help but point out, by the way, that in Iowa for the caucuses, you get one day to vote. There are no early voting options, no vote by mail, none of that. No absentee. You show up to participate or you don't get to participate. That's uh, that's what the GOP wants, right? They, they only want, a lot of them anyway, only want election day as the only day. No absentee, no early, no mail-in, just show up that one day. And we see yesterday how meteorology, how the climate can play a role in turnout. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that may not have had factors in past elections, key elections in this country. The entire reason we vote on a Tuesday is steeped in our agrarian past, by the way. It gave farmers the opportunity to travel all the way into the nearest town to vote. And remember, this is back when it was just the menfolk. They would hitch their wagon or horse and haul themselves into town with enough time, after church, of course, to go into town and vote and get back in time to do a little bit of farm tending and be ready for the next Sunday at their local church. And being that elections are typically held in November, especially for federal office, I have to imagine there may have been some occasions when some pretty nasty wintry weather kept Paul from hopping in the wagon and heading to town to place his vote for Rutherford B. whomever. But it's not 1844, it's 2024, and we have options available to us that give us the ability to increase participation as much as possible. Iowa, however, is one such case where you don't really have that option because it's a caucus state. There has to be a physical participation in order to effect and help determine the outcome. Now, listen, I have absolutely no idea how many Iowa conservative voters stayed home as opposed to participate. And I don't think 
if they'd have had greater participation, we'd have seen a dramatic difference in the results. And, and I'll, I'll dial into the results here in just a little bit. But I do want to talk a little bit about the turnout because it, it's it's difficult to say how much the weather determined it versus, oh God, it's going to be Trump again, isn't it? Or maybe that no one on the ticket really energize that base to turn out dot, 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 even despite the weather. Uh, Tom Yam was talking with uh, Iowa pollster and Seltzer about this on NBC News yesterday. Apparently, there's there's from what we're hearing from the Iowa Republican Party, right, the Iowa GOP, there's going to be a, a somewhat low turnout for this caucus. They're, they're sort of projecting one hundred thirty thousand. And what does that what does that mean to you when you hear that number? I know we had a bigger number, I believe, in 2016. Not as big, I think, in 2012 was around that number. Uh, yeah, one hundred twenty two thousand. Chuck showing me in 2012 versus one hundred eighty six thousand. Look, it's, it's the coldest night ever for the caucus. Right. I guess it's it's pretty good to get one hundred and thirty. You know, when I hear people make predictions about things like turnout, I write it down in my calendar that I carry with me at all times. And the only uh, forecast that I heard were it was it would be record breaking. It would be over 200,000. So you see uh, 187,000 last time. So a bump up from that. And I'm not terribly surprised. We didn't ask any questions that gave us any insight into what the weather what the wind chill index, what, what what would it have to be for you to stay home? That would have been a great poll question to ask. And do you think it was the weather or do you think it was people just knowing or thinking that maybe Trump was inevitable? Well, I think the weather has a lot to do with it. The roads are still slick. The, the parking lots are still icy. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. But, um, you know, if you're if you're looking at Haley, you're looking at DeSantis and you're seeing in our poll a, a large margin for Trump. You might, if you're not feeling that enthusiastic, you might say, you "Might say, why bother? Why bother?" See, I think Anne has a point, and I think a lot of pundits were looking to see how the results were going to look, and the fifty percent mark being so important to determining what kind of grip Donald Trump had on the GOP primary going into New Hampshire, which, by the way, doesn't allow a whole lot of early voting or absentee voting. You can request an absentee ballot if you need to, I believe for like a religious exemption, maybe a work requirement or disability as well, but but they're pretty stringent about trying to show up in person if you can. Uh, so there, there may be, depending, I guess, on the weather for that uh, primary day, there may be some folks who decide to take advantage of the absentee situation, but it's, again, very hard in New Hampshire. In Iowa, we saw Trump finishing with 51% of the vote and Governor Ron DeSantis about 30 points behind a 21% Nikki Haley uh, at slightly above 19%. For whatever reason, Nikki Haley decides to go out before her supporters yesterday to last night and say, oh, the results say this is a two-person race. Um, if, it, if it does, why are you staying in? Yeah, um, so that was awkward. But what I was going to point out was the subdued turnout may have negatively affected the DeSantis-Haley camp more than the Donald Trump camp. The conventional wisdom was, well, Trump will have the older voters, and the older voters may not want to venture out in the weather, or there may be some of that inevitabilism that seeps into his camp, and oh, Trump's got this in the bag, it doesn't matter if I go participate, so it may have subdued. But I, I, I hear what Ann's saying, and I, I think contrarily, you could also argue that 
my guy, my gal is so far behind, it doesn't matter if I show up and vote or not. And they can tell me how important it is, as, as Donald Trump did. Donald Trump literally went out and said, you know, put your life on the line for me, please. <sighs> um, but again, the, uh, the outcome was so baked in already that you could probably argue in some respects that all three may have suffered from the weather keeping their base at home. Now, listen, if there were a real alternative with a real shot with any traction whatsoever, I think that candidate might have been able to get their base out. But there really was no true alternative to Donald Trump. No matter how hard these candidates try to subtly convince their base otherwise. And I say subtly because neither of the two left have shown the guts to really go hard at Donald Trump. And it's it's kind of difficult to anyway when one was his UN ambassador and the other was his hand-picked, hand-endorsed uh, gubernatorial candidate from Florida. The guy is literally younger Trump. So it's kind of hard to go after someone who you either worked with and or emulate in some form. But when you think about the GOP primary options, there really were precious few actual alternatives. The one alternative that comes to mind was Congressman Will Hurd from Texas, who after the 2016 primary sort of distanced himself from Donald Trump and was very outspoken about his opposition to Trump's antics and rhetoric. Outside of that, you look at the rest of the candidates, the serious candidates, Mike Pence, well, that was Trump's vice president, Tim Scott, U.S. Senator, endorsing Trump back in 2016, there to work for him on his reelection in 2020 in South Carolina. Chris Christie was an advisor for Donald Trump before becoming the one outspoken critic that had any traction. And it's because of his past association with Donald Trump, I believe, that no one took him seriously. I did. I thought, I was like, man, this I want this guy to stay in the race. He's making up, this guy's spitting. He's, he's making some valid points, right? Too little, too late. Vivek Ramaswamy just dropped out last night after his disappointing, shock the world, uh, results in Iowa. He's already endorsed Donald Trump. And was himself timid to take any jabs at Donald Trump. He kind of borrowed the Nikki Haley new generation rhetoric. Asa Hutchinson never really had a chance. Uh, Nikki Haley was his UN ambassador. Ron DeSantis obviously uh, emulates the Donald and was uh, endorsed by Donald Trump. Just has his smarmy orange finger, fingerprints all over him. So it's and, and again, neither of them have adopted the Christie rhetoric to make themselves viable. The Lincoln Project voter, I call him the Lincoln Project voter because I think there is still that Republican voter, I think about my ex-father-in-law a lot about this actually, that Republican voter that is still a fiscal conservative, social conservative, yada, 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 but can't bring themselves to vote for Donald Trump. They'll vote for everybody else on the ticket, cannot vote for Donald Trump. And you look at the viable GOP primary options and you realize there were none. 
Now, I have to tell you, if you don't know this about me from before, I'm not a religious person. I grew up in a Baptist church, Southern Baptist church. Uh, the white evangelical culture surrounded me. So I'm a little attuned to it, and it really hurts my heart to see this. But Donald Trump has a strong following amongst white evangelicals. Uh, entrance polling in Iowa showed that he was favored by 53% of white evangelicals in the state of Iowa. So I'm guessing that that means that the other 47% of white evangelicals feel like their values aren't represented by him. And I don't know that that's necessarily something to brush off. I just wonder about the 53% who know everything they know about him and continue to support him. Going to touch on that when we come back here in just a minute. New, There's a new advertisement from the Lincoln Project that sort of touches on that. We'll dive in when the Rancho returns here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Tuesday. As a child of the 80s, I got to listen to a lot of Paul Harvey commentary. Oddly enough, it was on the pop station where I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Back then, though, you only had like four or five radio stations to listen to. And so Paul Harvey was on the pop station in the middle of uh, the lunch hour, which was the golden hour. It was a throwback because you didn't have so many signals that you could have an oldie station. So they played oldies from noon to one, and uh, they gave you Paul Harvey commentary. And so I, I grew up listening to Paul Harvey from time to time. Uh, one of the Paul Harvey pieces that sort of stands out and folks remember is the God Made a Farmer. Let me give you a piece of that real quick so I can then show you how the Lincoln Project sort of parodied it a little bit to take aim at Donald Trump. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. It's a nice homage that uh, he gave in a speech to the Future Farmers of America convention in the late 1970s and then aired uh, on his syndicated radio segment four years after that. In fact, it was used not all that long ago, I believe, in a Dodge truck commercial. Anyhow, earlier today, the Lincoln Project, which is mostly a batch of never-Trump Republicans who have taken to social media to continue to hammer on how far the party has drifted from its so-called conservative values to embrace Trumpism, released a parody of that Paul Harvey speech. This one is entitled, So God Made a Dictator. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a man to test the will and goodness of a free people. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who failed in everything but theft and broken promises to live in a golden palace and convince the poor he serves their needs. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a wicked man to lead the common folk with hatred and fear. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a corrupt man who is above the law and immune from justice. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who will use violence to seize power. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man whose followers will call black white, call evil good, and call criminals hostages. So God made a dictator. God said, I need his political party to obey without question, and the press fear his wrath. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a cruel man who uses his power and position to punish and harm his opposition. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who breaks the faith of even his most godly followers and leads them to idolatry. Place him above me. So God made a dictator. 
And then God said, I sent this man to test you, and until you cast him down, you have failed. So God made a dictator. Pretty sobering stuff. And obviously, again, a parody of the Paul Harvey, So God Made a Farmer speech. But nonetheless, that tracks. Now listen, those of us wringing our hands, worrying about our white evangelical friends and neighbors, wondering, what the heck are y'all thinking? Maybe there's a ray of hope in the results from entrance polls. They don't do exit, they do entrance uh, for Iowa caucuses in that Trump only got 53% of the white evangelical vote. In 2020, nationwide anyway, uh, AP estimated it was 81% to Biden's 18%. Edison exit polls estimate it was 76%. In 2020 to 24%. So it was, any, it was somewhere between 81 and 76%, 76 and 81%. So 53% is way down from that, but that's just Iowa. Who, who again, those voters had other options. And how many of the remaining 47% are just going to suck it up and get with their guy? I would imagine it probably gets them somewhere in that 76 to 81%. But still, still, in the primary polling, Donald Trump only got 53% of Iowa's white evangelical vote as opposed to 76 to 81%. In 2016, you go back, though, this is consistent stuff. Trump won by a 77 to 16% margin over Hillary Clinton, according to Pew Research. So we go back to 2016. Trump convinced 77% of white evangelical voters that he was the choice, the morally clear choice for their vote. In 2020, he convinced somewhere in the 76 to 81% of white evangelical voters, that he, after four years of being in office, after grabber by the was well out there, that he was still the morally clear choice. After all his antics, while in office, the hot mic moment, he still had 76 to 81% of white evangelical support. And even yesterday, uh, again, bearing in mind that the 47% that didn't vote for him in Iowa you got to think at least half of that if he's the candidate for the party on the general election ballot. You have to think at least 23-24% from that part that didn't vote for him is going to get back on the horse. And that puts him right back in the 86, I'm sorry, 76 and 77% mold. And I am personally again, not a religious person, just personally confounded by this. How do folks who claim to be devout evangelical Christians continue to say that their faith guides their political decisions in an era where a man is the leader of their preferred party and continues to carry their support, who is an immoral, not Christian in behavior, and likely not at all, Cretan. But then I realize it's actually not just him. The governor of the state of Texas, Greg Abbott, a self-professed Christian, plays politics with human lives despite what Jesus said about how we are to treat the immigrant. From NBC News yesterday. Tonight, the drowning of three migrants, a woman and two children, escalating tensions between the White House and the state of Texas. The White House says Texas officials in Eagle Pass prevented Border Patrol agents from providing emergency assistance to the migrants by blocking agents' access to a city park with a boat ramp. 
the state had recently taken control of the park earlier this week. I'd like to tell you what, what's going on here. As you can see, there's a gate here at Shelby Park. If you come down here, then they, are, they will be denying access. Texas Governor Greg Abbott justifying his state's takeover to police the border. Texas has uh, the legal authority uh, to, to control ingress and egress into any geographic location in the state of Texas. Uh, and that authority is being asserted uh, with regard to that park in Eagle Pass, Texas. The DOJ responding with a legal filing to the Supreme Court stating without the boat ramp, Border Patrol has no practical options for responding to migrants who may be in distress. A White House spokesperson telling NBC News, Governor Abbott's Political stunts are cruel, inhumane, and dangerous, adding U.S. Border Patrol must have access to the border to enforce our laws. Leviticus 19, 33, and 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Y'all, again, I am not a religious person, but I feel like if I were, I would be an even greater opinionated progressive liberal than I already am. I actually have more on this. How the GOP is working to sabotage efforts to curb the surge at the southern border when the Rancho returns here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. So count me among those who absolutely had no idea and still probably would be surprised to find out some of the things that are happening around the world that the Biden administration is trying to remedy that we're absolutely unaware of. One of them happens to be a Central and South American policy that I'm going to bring to your attention if it's not already brought to your attention now. First, I got to tell you, uh, I share this graphic all the time on social media that it's just an informative graphic. It talks about the 56, is it 56 different military interventions in Latin America that date as far back as, oh gosh, how far back can we go here? Uh, I see the 90s, the 80s, 1975. Yeah, it, it doesn't look like it, this really, okay, this is the number of military interventions uh, by the U.S. military since 1890 in Latin America. One of them occurred in 1954 when the CIA directed bombing and uh, invasion and participated in a coup after a newly elected, right there by Guatemalan citizens, a newly elected government went to nationalize uh, United Fruit Company lands. More than 200,000 people died in this civil war, and we had our hands all in it. By the way, the United Fruit Company is now what you would know as Chiquita, Chiquita Bananas. 200,000 lives lost in a civil war in Guatemala, and we were sort of involved in that. I mentioned Guatemala, and I mentioned the 56 U.S. military interventions in Latin America, and I shared this graphic all the time. I will include it. Can I do it? In the show notes at ronshowatl.com. Yes, I can. Um, I mentioned this because I bring this up all the time when I'm having social media dialogue with someone who just simplistically wants us to slap a wall up and get tougher about immigration, uh, I, as tough as Texas just letting people drown in the river instead of letting Border Patrol agents go to save their lives to give them a chance. I mention that because it's important to understand that we're not just dealing with folks who are coming here just because uh, 
they can't get a job where they are or they want free this or free that. They want social security. They want the free check and the school and all that. I, I could sit here and argue circles around that sort of stuff anyway, because if you live here legally or illegally, if you live here, you pay rent or somehow buy property to live here, you pay property taxes. The landlord doesn't eat that cost. It's in the rent. Trust me. It's in the rent and then some because the landlord seeks to make a profit, of course, because landlords are in business to make money, as is anyone in business to do so, by and large, to make money. You also pay sales taxes and ad valorem taxes. You buy gas and foods and goods and services, the sales tax, a lot of that tax money going towards the services that we all get from local, county, state, federal governments and actually get more of in return as citizens or those who are here on work visas, which by the way, most people who stay here illegally are coming here with valid visas and then just overstaying them. Uh, Anyway, we get more of those services back from the taxes we put in than the folks who are staying here illegally. So they're actually the ones kind of getting screwed over. Yeah, you heard me. I said it. They're the ones kind of getting screwed over. Now, you can sit here and argue about, oh, they're here to take our jobs. How how many of you have been fruit pickers? Anyone? How many of you uh, were working a a cool domestic job or in the kitchen or a a chicken factory? How many? Agriculture, anyone? Now, there's a valid concern to be made about those who hire undocumented labor to work in construction, uh, plumbing, electrical, et cetera, and so on. Valid concerns. I would say point your ire at those who are doing the hiring illegally because at the end of the day, if you don't want stray cats on your porch, you shouldn't put out a bowl of kibble all the time. Does that make sense? So anyway, I want to get back to what I was going to tout that I didn't know even existed until yesterday. And I was embroiled, I say embroiled, I was uh, on Twitter X, whatever we're calling it, uh, having this conversation and I plopped that 56 US military intervention graphic down. Next thing I know, I'm uh, dialoguing with uh, some folks on a thread about the U.S. strategy for addressing the root causes of migration in Central America. Wait a minute, this is a thing? This is this exists? Yes, it does and has since July of 2021. This is a program that the Biden administration, led by, get this, Vice President Kamala Harris, we were told all along this was supposed to be her job. Republicans want her to stand at the southern border for photo ops. Meanwhile, she and the rest of the administration are working on what is called, again, the U.S. strategy for addressing the root causes of migration in Central America. And when I share that graphic that talks about all the military interventions and how so much of the destabilization economically, politically, climatologically even, is rooted in our behavior and our misdeeds, militarily and otherwise. You can make the moral argument that actually it's it's sort of our responsibility, or at least partially our responsibility, to participate in the stabilization or restabilization of countries that our actions and behaviors have caused when it comes to the destabilization that sends folks 
running for safer havens, for better opportunities. So I was reading just the introduction here, the, the first, I'm sorry, the second page the, of the U.S. strategy for addressing root causes of migration in Central America. And this is the cover message from Vice President Kamala Harris. In Central America, she writes, the root causes of migration run deep. And migration from the region has a direct impact on the United States. For that reason, our nation must persistently engage with the region to address the hardships that cause people to leave Central America and come to our border. For decades, our nation has engaged in Central America. Often well-intentioned, the engagement has often not been consistent. And over the last few years, the United States significantly pulled back from work in the region. The last few years being the Trump administration. Under our administration, President Joe Biden and I have restarted our nation's engagement in Central America in diplomatic efforts with Central American governments. Our root causes strategy is comprehensive and draws from decades of experience and is based on four core pieces of evidence. First, addressing the root causes of migration is critical to our overall immigration effort. Just after we took office, she writes, President Joe Biden outlined our administration's vision to reform our immigration system by creating a pathway to citizenship for nearly 11 million undocumented migrants in, the, in our country, modernizing our immigration process and effectively managing our border. Shortly after that, the president asked me to lead our nation's efforts to address the root causes of that migration. That is because migration to our border is also a symptom of much larger issues in the region. Second, providing relief is not sufficient to stem migration from the region. The COVID-19 pandemic and extreme weather conditions have indeed exacerbated the root cause of migration. Causes, she said, uh, I should point out, of migration, which include corruption, violence, trafficking, and poverty. While our administration is proud that we have sent millions of vaccine doses and hurricane relief, we know that it is not enough to alleviate suffering in the long term. The root causes must be addressed both in addition to relief efforts and apart from these efforts. In everything we do, we must target our efforts in those areas of highest uh, out-migration and ensure that these programs meet the highest standards of accountability and effectiveness. I am just two points through her four-point opening letter here. She hasn't mentioned a wall. She hasn't mentioned uh, criminalizing, uh, imprisoning, any, any of these sorts of things. See, it's, it's more complicated than build the wall. And so many Americans can't grasp the complexities of this complex problem. And yet here we have evidence since July of 2021. Just five months into this administration, this project began. A complex pathway of solutions to deal with our immigration efforts. Something I've been saying when I share that 56 U.S. military interventions graphic. You know, it'd probably serve us better to try and restabilize these countries we've helped to destabilize than erecting a wall that doesn't solve anything. It's like a Band-Aid to cure cancer. Band-Aids don't cure cancer. Okay, third, unless we address all of the root causes, problems will persist. Yes, that's exactly what I was saying. Recent, I promise I didn't even see this before I started reading. Recently, I traveled to Guatemala. Let's put a pin in Guatemala, where one of the largest challenges is corruption. Our administration knows that. Where corruption goes unchecked, people suffer. And so, on that trip, the United States announced that we will launch an anti-corruption task force which will include U.S. prosecutors and law enforcement experts who will investigate corruption cases. It is our goal that, in dealing directly with corruption, we will also mitigate the lack of economic and educational opportunities on the ground. 
Fourth, and most importantly, Kamala Harris writes, the United States cannot do this work alone. Okay, see, if you're on the right and you don't want to pay for it yourself, and we shouldn't have to pay for it ourselves, but we are largely responsible, you should be happy to hear that she says this, right? Our strategy is far-reaching and focuses on our partnerships with other governments, international institutions, businesses, foundations, and civil society. At this writing, we have already received commitments from the governments of Mexico, Japan, who has no skin in this game whatsoever, Korea, and the United Nations to join the United States in providing relief to the region. Our administration is also working hand-in-hand with foundations and nonprofits to accelerate efforts in Central America. While in the past, the private sector has been an underutilized partner, although they've been complicit, Chiquita Banana, our administration is calling on U.S. and international businesses to invest in the region. And thus far, 12 have done so. Private sector investment not only boosts economic opportunity, but it also incentivizes regional governments to create the conditions on the ground to attract such investment. She finishes this quick summary, and this is a several-page document. Again, I'll give you this in the show notes. Ultimately, our administration will consistently engage in the region to address the root causes of migration. We will build on what works, and we will pivot away from what does not work. It will not be easy. Boy, this is something the American people need to hear. And progress will not be instantaneous. The American people need to see this. But we are committed to getting it right because we know the strength and security of the United States depends on the implementation of strategies like this one. Hear, hear. Holy crap. Hear, hear. Now get this. We've watched in the last few days, well, I say we, there are those who have watched in the last few days where democracy took place in Guatemala. By the way, Guatemala has been run by a conservative faction for quite a while. Well, there is a reformist who was sworn in as Guatemala's president after opponents triggered by former Trump cabinet member Richard Grinnell tried to delay his inauguration. Reuters, Sophia Menchu reporting on this. Anti-corruption crusader Bernardo Arevalo was sworn in as Guatemala's president in the early hours of Monday after a chaotic inauguration that was delayed for hours by a last-ditch attempt by the Guatemalan Congress opponents to weaken his authority. The latest in a series of legislative setbacks triggered by opponents underscore the challenges Arevalo faces as leader of Central America's most populous nation, to which he has pledged to bring sweeping reforms and tackle the rising cost of living and violence, key drivers of migration, to the United States. Richard Grinnell, by the way, all over Twitter, trying to undermine those efforts to stem corruption in Guatemala. and right in there with the opponents in the Guatemalan Congress to try and delay the inauguration. Uh, Following this Twitter account, Clearing the Fog, Guatemala overwhelmingly elected a liberal president, but today, right-wing, this is yesterday, today, right-wing members of the legislature and court attempted to halt his inauguration. Richard Grinnell has been conducting, air quotes, diplomacy, undermining U.S. policy, and is openly agitating sedition. Tweeting, From Betty Marikin, 2021, what a pleasure talking to Richard Grinnell. It is refreshing to have met a true American patriot. 
hashtag who loves this country, hashtag freedom, hashtag rule of law, hashtag Republican values. As much as I love all of these principles and my beloved hashtag Guatemala, thank you, Ambassador, for your interest in my country and for this opportunity to discuss what is happening here. That's from uh, January 11th, 2024. Another opponent of the newly sworn in president of Guatemala, uh, Alejandro Giametti. It was a pleasure to have received my diplomat friend, Richard Grinnell, who, by the way, is not a diplomat for the United States anymore, to talk about the shared values in the bilateral relationship with EEUU on national security, irregular migration, the promotion of Republican values, and the defense of sovereignty. Richard Grinnell down there just stirring the pot. He tweets on, when was this? Uh, stop intimidating Guatemalans who disagree with you politically. Your phony argument that people are, quote, undermining democracy when they simply disagree with you politically is ruining America's brand. <laughs> oh, God. Self-awareness lacking, right? We see you do it in America and around the world. Concentrate on the disastrous border you've helped create. As he's there trying to undermine democracy in Guatemala that's trying to turn away from the regime that's allowed for so many people to leave Guatemala for our own border. Republicans don't want to solve the immigration crisis. They want to keep it alive so they can keep voters showing up angry about it. And we're seeing the evidence of this sabotage right now. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, final segment for the day. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate that. And I know I kind of dove off into the weeds about Guatemala for crying out loud. But trust me, it, it all comes back to the... <sighs> simplistic, simpleton-like approach that the GOP, and in particular Donald Trump and his MAGA movement, have tried to handle, I should say, the southern border crisis, uh, as it were, and the reform efforts that are actually in progress, being put into place, and again, are are sort of like gardening. You, You can't plant the seed and go out tomorrow and pull a cucumber out of the ground right? These things take time. And as you read or heard me read from the Biden-Harris missive from the summer of 2021, these things are going to take time. But I will point out, by the way, that one of the major reasons a lot of these uh, predicted surges didn't happen early on in the Biden presidency is because some of the work that they were doing on the ground to work to, again, restabilize destabilized countries in Central and South America. Uh, let's talk about economies here at home, however. Uh, it was today that Georgia's new uh, state economist, a guy who uh, took the job last September, Robert Bushman, uh, told lawmakers today, according to James Salzer at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, that a mild recession is, quote, more likely than not in the first half of 2024. But massive surpluses following the COVID-19 shutdown, that's federal money, have allowed the state to squirrel away money, that's federal money, so big spending can continue. We have mitigating factors that should make any recession a mild one, and we may still avoid one. Bushman, a longtime Georgia State University economist, said on the opening day of Joint House and Senate Budget Committee hearings reviewing Governor Brian Kemp's spending proposals. And by the way, I went and uh, decided to do a little homework on Robert Bushman, and kind of find him to be one of those conservatives I could probably get along with quite well. He does not like Donald Trump. He doesn't like the MAGA culture. I I mean, does this surprise you that he is 
someone that Brian Kemp appointed to the uh, role of state economist. Doesn't surprise me at all. And, you know, thinking back to the first segment, we were talking about how uh, GOP voters really didn't have a viable, actual conservative option. And listen, I have a lot of things that I can quibble about Brian Kemp over, and you'll hear me do that quite often anyway, if you're new to this. Um, But say what you will, the, the man is a more by-the-books Republican. He is more a Liz Cheney Republican, uh, the kind of Republican that, again, you can disagree with on a lot of things and uh, yell at the TV when she's on Fox News talking or he's on Fox News talking. Trust me, I do this all the time. He misstates or distorts a lot of things. He, for example, you know, spent the day today, again, talking to lawmakers about the Biden inflation. Like, that's not really a thing, dude. (laughs) You know, inflation's actually stemmed and is finally stabilizing and back to normal, thanks to the results of this presidency, you could argue. And actually, even if you didn't want to, you could at least say, well, if they didn't do anything to fix it, you also have to confess they didn't cause inflation. It's not like inflation was an American problem. We just talked about how inflation was affecting the Guatemalan economy, for example, Damn it, Joe Biden, how did you do that? How did you affect Guatemalan inflation? Yeah, so I guess getting back to uh, this uh, new economist, the guy who uh, just took the job here uh, back in September, uh, his name, again, Robert Bushman, he's not a fan of Donald Trump. So when I hear him or read about him talking about a mild recession, you know what? I take this as someone who is an economist who is a little left, I'm sorry, right of center, fairly enough. But I don't I don't take that to mean that he's trying to play politics with what he's trying to say. In fact, I would surmise that if a recession were going to occur early in 2024, the earlier the better. If you're if you're pulling for Joe Biden to get reelected, right. You you want, you know, get it over with. <laughs> but but we've managed to avoid that. We've been hearing predictions of recession from the right since he was putting his hand on the Bible, January 2021 up oh, recessions around the corner. Still not here. Uh, New Atlanta journal constitution polling shows that Donald Trump leads Joe Biden here in Georgia, a swing state. Whew. Again, remember the 50% number. That's the number you want to pay attention to, but it's hard not to notice these numbers that Joe Biden trails former president and often indicted Donald Trump by a 45 to 37% margin. There again, Donald Trump only getting 45% of those polled so far. Uh, Greg Bluestein, Michelle Baruchman at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution writing, the poll showed nearly 20% of Georgians weren't ready to support either candidate as the presidential race shifts from Iowa after Trump's dominant victory Monday in the first nominating contest of the 2024 election cycle. Guess what you will about what that 20% is going to do. I would probably say it's probably a a two-to-one ratio would go towards Joe Biden if you're not decided at this point in time. Like, I think Trump's near his his peak, near his, his glass ceiling. That's as far as he's going to go. But you know what? Even if that falls two to one, that means Donald Trump gets about 52% to Joe Biden's. Do I have that right? It would seem to be, yeah. If you take 20% divided by three, you're looking at... Uh, okay, no, I'm I'm wrong. Yeah, it's 51% to, to Biden's 49-ish. <laughs> Super close, once again. 
the reporting continues. Biden is hurt by soft support among many Democratic and independent voters who were crucial to his narrow 2020 victory over Trump in Georgia, including 10% of black voters who say they don't plan on voting in the White House race at all. I'm not going to sit here and assume they're going to come home, but I have to think when push comes to shove and rubber meets the road, folks are going to come to their senses if Donald Trump threatens to be a president of these United States again. Compounding Biden's struggles in Georgia are his low approval ratings. About 62% of registered voters are critical of the president's job performance, and a slim majority say they strongly disapprove of the Democrat. And you can surmise that some of that disapproval even comes from Democrats. All right. I'll uh, put that and a lot more from today in the show notes at ronchoatl.com. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate that. Bundle up, get the pipes uh, to the water dripping so the pipes don't freeze, and we'll catch you tomorrow. Here, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Have a good one.